Hey, thank you so much for um, being here today. And if you're in our overflow room, I want to say welcome. Or if you're watching us on Facebook li uh, Live, thank you for joining us as well in worship. So we are today wrapping up uh, a series that we started last Easter called He is Still Rolling Stones. Um, and if you were here with us on Easter, you know that we talked about God's greatest stone rolling moment in history. Uh, when the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you were here that week, I said that if God was able to do that, if God was able to roll away the greatest stone in your life, the stone of physical death, of spiritual death, if God was able to remove that barrier, then God is more than able to remove those things that you think are impossible, those barriers that you're experiencing in your life right now. And so today we're wrapping up this series by talking about rolling away the stone of our past, rolling away the stone of our failures, those mistakes of the past, those sins of the past, those, those moments of the past that have shaped us, those things that have been done to us, anything that keeps us from living now the way that God would have us to live. Years ago when I was living in another city, I had a friend whose wife had been diagnosed with agoraphobia. Uh, if you're not familiar with agoraphobia, it is the fear of public places. Uh, we actually get that word from the ancient Greek term for the marketplace. Uh, their public marketplace was called the agora. Uh, in the Bible, when you read that Paul goes into a Greek city and he goes into the marketplace, that literal term is agora. It's where the business happened. It's where government offices were located. Agoras were normally crowded and loud and busy. And so someone with agoraphobia has a fear of going into crowds, going into to public places. Which, by the way, this past year has been a dream come true for agoraphobics. Uh, you can order everything you need to from the comfort of your home. You can... Um, shop online, you can get groceries delivered to your house, you can even work remotely, um, and so you can live a pretty normal life as an agoraphobic. Well, years ago, when I knew this friend, that was not the case. It was a, it was a major hardship on their life. He had to do all of the shopping, he had to take the kids wherever they needed to go. He was a sole income for the family. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. Uh, one day I asked him, how did this happen? You know, how did she, she get to this point in life? And he described to me some events that had happened to her as a teenager that basically rose to the surface as an adult and caused her to have this condition where she was literally trapped in her home and trapped in life, unable to go forward because of what happened in her past. Now, I'm assuming that none of you in this room are agoraphobics because you're here in a public place However, all of us in this room have things that have happened to us in the past or things we have done in the past that cause us to not live life to the fullest in the present. And this morning we're talking about how to roll away that stone of past regrets and past sins and past failures. Now we're going to read two verses from the book of Hebrews. If you've got a Bible with you and and you want to turn to Hebrews, it is in the New Testament, right after a little book called Philemon, and just before the book of James. Hebrews was most likely written by a guy named Apollos. 
Uh, although his name's not in the book, and we don't know that for sure, Apollos was Jewish. Um, he was well-educated. He was a great debater. And he wrote this book to Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The theme of Hebrews is basically Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, what they just called the Scriptures. So he wrote Hebrews for those Jews who are very familiar with the, the Scriptures to say all of this found its fulfillment in Jesus. And so the book of Hebrews is written with the Old Testament Scriptures as a background, but it was written to Jews who were living in the Roman world and the Greek culture. And so he draws on both images in this book. Uh, again, if you've got a Bible, chapter 12, uh, it, we're going to read the first two verses in chapter 12, and then we'll come back and talk about how this applies to us. Again, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring in its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so what does all this mean for us? Here's what the writer encourages us to do in this brief passage. The first is, for us, life is best lived when, number one, I learn from the past. The first thing the writer encourages is, is to learn from the examples of the past. It begins with this phrase, therefore, which is not a word that you use to begin a sentence. It's not a word you, begin, uh, you use to begin a conversation. If a friend walks up to you and says, therefore, we need to get in the car and leave right away, you're going to say, hold on, time out, back up. You had this little imaginary conversation in your head, and I need you to clue me in onto what you said in your head before you said to me, therefore. Whenever we use the word therefore, we are introducing an action to a previously stated concept or idea, which is exactly what we read in, ver in chapter 12. The author here is referring back to chapter 11 of Hebrews. Chapter 11, if you've been in church any amount of time, you know that it is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Um, that chapter lists the heroes of our faith, those Old Testament men and women who exhibited great faith in God. And Hebrews 11 begins with this definition of faith. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Here he begins with this definition of faith, which is this thing that we believe in strongly, even though we can't see it. Even though we cannot scientifically prove it to others, we know it to be true. Now my guess is there are some of you in here and this is hard for you. Uh, you. You like to see evidence. In fact, I put myself in this category. I really struggle with faith. 
I want to see uh, the evidence of whatever it is you want me to believe in. I want proof. I, I want documents. I want data. I want to look through the microscope. I want to look through the telescope and see it for myself. And maybe there's some of you in here and that's you. You really struggle with faith, with this idea of believing without proof. If that is you, let me give you just a few things to consider. The first is there is a lot of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And just as I've said so many times before, everything hinges on the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, if we believe that, then everything else is believable. If the resurrection is not true, the whole system falls apart and nothing else is believable. And there is a whole lot of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we won't go into all the details for that this morning, but if that is you, and this is a struggle for you, let me give you a couple of resources uh, the first is a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, written by Josh McDowell. The second is The Case for Christ, uh, written by Lee Strobel. Both of these are older books, but they're still available. Interestingly, The Case for Christ uh, was written uh, when Lee Strobel's wife began to go to church with a friend who invited her. And he said, I can't believe that you believe in that stuff. And he sat down to write out why the whole Christian faith was a farce. He was a writer for the Chicago Tribune, and he was you know, very good at investigating. And so he began to investigate to basically prove to his wife that Christianity was not true, and in the process became a follower of Christ. And so this book is all of his research and his journey to coming to Christ after seeing the evidence for the resurrection. So if you're a skeptic, check those out. The second thing, if you're a skeptic, is to think about this. There are a number of things that we believe in, even though we cannot scientifically prove them to be true. For example, I believe with everything in me that my wife loves me. I cannot prove that to you. There is no way for me to provide scientific evidence that that is true. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, she says she loves you. She could be lying. Yeah. Well, she does things for you. Well, but maybe it's out of some different motivation. Even though I cannot prove it to be true, with everything that's in me, I believe that my wife loves me. There are things in life that we believe on faith, even though we cannot prove it with a microscope or with a telescope. The third thing is this. At the end of the day, Faith is exactly that. It is, it is believing without knowing every detail. It is this confident hope, even without having the full picture of exactly where God is taking me in life. And here the writer of Hebrews commends these ancient men and women for distributing that kind of faith. And when you read chapter 11, you see what is this roll call of these individuals who stepped out in faith and followed God, even though they didn't know all the facts. They believed God, even without having every detail. Now, when you read that list, there are a lot of familiar names. Names that we read about in Sunday school, when you go to children's Sunday school, their stories are prominent, mainly because they're fascinating stories, but as well because they teach us these truths about God. 
And we read their stories of just how they had these incredible moments of trusting God. And yet, when you read the history of these individuals, you see that they were flawed men and women. That they had incredible moments of faith, and they also had really low moments where they did not trust God, where they got into horrible sin because their faith was weak. When you read through the list, you'll see names like Noah, who exhibited great faith, and yet Noah was also a drunkard. You see names like Isaac, who is commended for his faith, and yet Isaac also was a liar. He was a deceiver. You see names like Joseph, commended for his faith, yet Joseph was a braggart. You see names like Moses, commended for his faith, yet Moses was a stutterer, and Moses was a murderer. You see names like Rahab, commended for her faith, yet she was not Jewish, she was not religious at all, and she was a prostitute. You see names like Samson, commended for his faith, and yet he had a little problem with women, and he was full of pride. You see names like David, commended for his strong faith and trust in God, and yet at a low point in his life committed adultery and murder. You see in this list these great men and women of faith who exhibited strong trust in God and yet also had incredible failures in their life. You read through this list and what you see are people who are selfish and prideful and let's be honest, a whole lot like me and you. In fact, if, if I sat down with you over coffee and I said, I, I would love for you to tell me the top two or three times in your life where you have demonstrated incredible faith in God. Tell me about the high points in your life where you really trusted God and God did something big in your life because of that trust that you exhibited in Him. And you share those stories with me, I would say, man, that's incredible. That is really impressive. I mean, you have this really strong faith in God. But then if I said, share with me the bottom two or three stories of your life. I mean, those times that you really fail to trust in God. Tell me the two or three times that you really blew it, where you sinned big time, where you really got off track. Tell me those stories. My guess is you would tell me two or three stories that would make me say, I, I don't believe I would have told me that. Like, you told the pastor that. I can't believe I would have made something up. I you would tell me a story that was bad, right? And if you did the same thing to me, I could tell you two or three stories and you would go, wow, that's why you're our pastor. You have this great faith. And then if you said, tell me the worst things you've ever done, you'd say, I can't believe that you're our pastor. This is unbelievable how bad you've been in your life, right? We've all had great successes in life. And we've all had horrible failures in life. And the writer of Hebrews, as we will see in a moment, basically says, do not live in the past, either in the successes or in the failures. We learn from the past, but it is not the place that we need 
to live. Either those great moments or in those failures. Have you ever met someone who is stuck in a success of their past? It's all they talk about. You know, they just keep going back to that success. You know, the senior year in high school when he was captain of the football team and they had pep rallies every Friday and he had the microphone during the pep rallies and they went undefeated that season and then they went to state and in in the state championship they won in a last-minute play and he was involved in that play and they were state champions that year. Have you you ever been around someone like that? You know, you know quickly they're stuck in the past because it's all they talk about. You know, they go back to their high school football games, not to watch the current team, but to relive those games. You know, their, their life has never really moved beyond the 1985 state championship season of their high school. And you can, and you can see it in their life. You know, they've, they've never really moved forward in relationships or in their career or anything else. They just get stuck in that year of high school. And then there are other people, and they get stuck in their failures. And their failures become their identity. And it's not, hey, I made a mistake, but I am a mistake. It's not I failed, but I am a failure. It's not that I lost, but I am a loser. It's not, you know, this was done to me. It's this is who I am. And the writer of Hebrews says, do not get stuck in the past. Either those great moments or those less than great moments. And so what he encourages us to do is to learn from the past, but then to live in the present. Let's continue with verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Here, the writer of Hebrews makes a shift away from the Jewish scriptures and to a modern illustration in their world. Um, If you were here with us during the series that we did on 1 Corinthians, you know that Apollos, if he wrote this letter for a period of time, served as the pastor of the church in Corinth, a major Greek city. In the Greek world, the Olympics were the big show. Every four years, the Olympics happened in Athens, and that was the big event. But then every other year, second only to the Olympics, were the Isthmian Games, which happened just outside of Corinth. And in the Roman-slash-Greek world, they were, in that culture, completely sports-crazy. It's hard for us to imagine, you know, that. That's not really... You know, how we are, but they obsessed over sports. Every summer, major sporting events happened where they could go and watch these events. And so all of the readers of Hebrews would have been very familiar with the analogy that the writer uses here. Um, So we're going to start from the back of this verse and work forward. And one of the things to keep in mind is that the image here that he paints of a sporting event would have been one of their main events, which was running, which was different sort of um, sprints or long-distance running events. And when runners ran in that day, you have to keep this in mind, they ran without clothing on. The reason is, is because they didn't have Under Armour or Nike or Dry Wick anything, and so clothing would slow them down. It would get caught up in their legs, the type of material that they had, 
And they wanted to make sure that they were able to run as quickly as possible. Any, anything that would encumber them could you know, cost them a half a second and cost them the race. So the writer of Hebrews uses that as a background. And notice what he says. We'll start at the end. He says, throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Whenever we talk about sin in the church, we tend to think of guilt and condemnation. You know, we have this image of of God in heaven looking down on us. And and if we get out of line, if we sin at all, he's going to throw a lightning bolt or two down and just, you know, punish us for our sin. And here the writer of Hebrews encourages us that God who created us and knows us best and knows how we best operate wants our lives to be free from the entanglement of sin. Meaning this, if you are a follower of Christ, you are 100% loved by God and completely forgiven. Past sin, present sin, future sin, there is nothing you can do to change God's love for you. It is not based on how much you sin or do not sin. It is based on what Christ did for you. And in Christ, you are fully forgiven. However, God understands that sin will wrap itself around your feet and tangle you up so that you cannot move forward in life. That sin will keep you from being everything that God wants you to be, from doing the things that God wants you to do, from living life to the fullest. And the God who understands how you operate, how you operate best looks at your life and says, I, I just want you to be free from the entanglement of sin. Pastor and author John MacArthur puts it this way. Doubting and living in faith contradict each other. Unbelief entangles the Christian's feet so that he cannot run. It wraps itself around us so that we trip and stumble every time we try to move for the Lord. If we try at all. It easily entangles us. When we allow sin in our lives, especially unbelief, it is quite easy for Satan to keep us from running. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, even if you're new to church, you're not even sure if you believe the Bible, you get this, that sin will entangle and derail our lives. All you have to do is go online and read the headlines. Just turn on the television and read stories about people who have found themselves caught up in sin and their lives have been wrecked as a result. God here says, look, I want you to run the race of life free from the entanglement of sin. However, there's another element to it as well. Not only throwing off sin, but let us throw off everything that hinders us in this race. Again, it is the image of a runner in a race who every second counts and he wants to be able to run as fast as possible. And so if there's anything, even if it's not wrong in and of itself, The runner says, I I don't want anything to keep me from winning this race, from coming in first. And so the writer here says, even things that are good, if they're keeping you from Jesus, then they're bad. Throw off anything that keeps you from following God 100%. Which means, and we all have a way of doing this, we can take things that are good 
And they become bad because they keep us from following God. Sports. I love sports. Sports are great. Sports are fun. I enjoy playing. I enjoy watching. However, as we all know, sports can become your God. And they can keep you from God. And if your life becomes obsessed with sports and it's hurting your relationship with Christ, then that's something the writer says, throw that off. Your career. It's good to work. It's good to earn a living. All of that is good. But we can obsess over our career. And our career can end up becoming our idol. Even family. And family is good. But family can become an idol. To the point that it actually keeps us from pursuing God. And so the writer here says, take all of that and throw off anything that is keeping you from pursuing God. Now, I know a lot of this sounds like you just better bear down and make sure that you get it right. You know, work, 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 run hard, run hard, run hard. And it, and it feels a little exhausting. But understand what the writer is saying here. Throw off sin, throw off anything that hinders us, but understand this. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses as we go through this race. So the cloud here symbolizes the presence of God. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see a cloud, it it symbolizes God's presence. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God comes down to meet with him, to give him the Ten Commandments. And the Bible says God came down in a cloud. Uh, The nation of Israel, as they fled Egypt, and as they were headed towards the Promised Land, they followed a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When Jesus went up on top of the mountain in an event we call the Transfiguration, and God met with them, God came down in a cloud. The cloud symbolizes the presence of God. So the writer of Hebrews here is saying, if you are a follower of Christ, listen carefully. The writer of Hebrews is saying, as you're doing all of this, you are surrounded by the presence of God. This is not, well, make sure you bear down and you do it all and it's all in your effort. It is resting in God's grace. It is resting in God's power as you do these things. It is saying, God, this sin is so tempting to me right now, but I'm trusting in your power to be able to resist. God, right now, I don't feel like pursuing you, but I am trusting in your power to change my heart and to pursue you with everything that is in me. The writer here says you are surrounded by the presence of God and and not just the presence of God, but a cloud full of witnesses. All of these witnesses that he described in chapter 11, all of those men and women who have gone before us, who are now in heaven, are cheering us on in this race of life. They are cheering us on as we pursue Christ. The image that he gives here, again, is a stadium, one of those ancient Greek stadiums that is packed with fans. This is not a pandemic, 25% max capacity crowd in the stadium. This is not a non-conference football game where everybody leaves at halftime and they're kind of bored and they're just there to hang out with their friends. This is the conference championship played at night, televised on ESPN, 
where all the stands are in the fourth, all the fans are in the stands in the fourth quarter. The clock is ticking. It is a close game, and the home team fans are on their feet, jumping up and down and yelling and cheering and saying, Go, go, go. And the players who are on the field, who are exhausted, who just don't feel like running another play, who are so incredibly tired, they draw energy from the crowd. And somewhere deep within, maybe it's just pure adrenaline, they're able to make that play. They're able to run down the field. They're able to go a little bit harder. Why? Because everyone's cheering, go, go, go. That is the image here of of our race of life with the great cloud of witnesses who who are saying to us, go, we've been there. We have been where you are. We've had times where we believed and we had strong faith and we have had times where we blew it. And we can tell you, keep the faith. It is worth it. It is worth it. Keep pursuing Christ no matter how hard it gets because it is worth it. This is where the sports analogy breaks down just a little bit. So I love going to watch games. I love to watch games on television. Our family went to Truist Park on Friday night to watch the Braves play. I I love going to sporting events. Friday night, as we were at Truist Park, from the comfort of my fourth-level cheap seat tickets, I was able to make all sorts of criticisms of our players. Why did he do that? Why did he try to steal? Why did he throw it there? Why did he swing at that pitch? You know, I was able to do all sorts of critiquing. It's the same thing I do if I'm watching a football game. You know, why did the quarterback throw it to the one player who was covered instead of the three who were open? Why did the coach make that call? If I were there, I would have made a different call. That was a ridiculous call. But the truth is, I've never played college football. And I've never played professional baseball. It's easy for me to criticize, but I've never been there. Here, the great cloud of witnesses, they are fans in the stadium packing it out who have played on the field. And they have had experiences and they are able to say, we've been there. We understand what you're going through. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith. The problem is sometimes we listen to the wrong voices. Instead of listening to the great cloud of witnesses, we listen to the black cloud of the prophets of doom. Those critics who will just say to us, is it really worth it? Come on, you're a nobody. What what are you thinking? You think God could ever forgive you? You think you could do something for God? Come on. In fact, there's a uh, a great passage I found um, that I, I had to delete one of the words or change one of the words. You'll see why in just a minute here. It said, a lot of cheap seats in the arena are filled with people who never venture onto the floor. They just hurl mean-spirited criticisms and put-downs from a safe distance. The problem is when we stop caring what people think and stop feeling hurt by cruelty, we lose our ability to connect. But when we're defined by what people think, we lose the courage to be vulnerable. Therefore, we need to be selective about the feedback we let into our lives. For me, if you're not in the arena getting your butt kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. So here the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen to the great cloud of witnesses who are cheering you on and saying, go, go, go. 
So how do we do that? Here's how. We learn from the past. We live in the present. But then the way we do this is we look to the future. Verse 2, here's what he says. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, the writer here uses an illustration from those um, track and field events that took place in the Olympics and those type games. Runners in that day would not do like runners in our day where they run around an oval track. In that day, runners ran from a fixed point to another fixed point and back. They would run in a straight line, almost like modern-day swimmers start, they stay in their lane, and then they come back. They would run that way. And the way they would do it is they would start on one end of the stadium and each runner would be assigned a wooden pole that would be stuck into the ground. And you had to know which pole was yours and the runner would then keep his eyes fixed on that pole the entire time he ran. Because if he deviated to the right or to the left, he could possibly veer off course and veering off course could cost him half a second or a second. And he would potentially lose the race. So the entire time he watched that pole in front of him to be able to run that race as fast as he could. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. The way that we do this is we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The way that we're able to live in the presence is that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We learn from the past, from our mistakes and our failures. In the present, we throw off anything that hinders And then we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to the one who is able to resist temptation, resist sin, and die on a cross on our behalf. And we say, look, even when I fail, I'm going to get back up again. I'm keeping my eyes focused on Jesus. Here's what this means. It doesn't matter who you are. Even if you have committed so many crimes in your life that your rap sheet is as long as the book of Hebrews, even if you have blown it time and time again, in Christ, you are fully 100% loved and forgiven and can be used by God to do great things. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You are a forgiven loved child of God who can be used by God. So run hard. Go hard after Him. Don't don't give in to the lies that this sin would bring you joy and happiness. Don't get entangled by those things. Run, run, run. A few verses as I close that just reinforce this theme that's found all throughout Scripture. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, regardless of what you've done. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So in Christ, you are a brand new, forgiven, new creation. And then finally, Philippians 3. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind 
and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus.